Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Uh, can I ask everybody to please stand and join me in the Pledge to the Flag? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Uh, thank you. Bruce? Bruce Allardyce, would you please give us the invocation? Okay. Okay, I see if some lightning's going to hit or something. But uh, this is an invocation that was given at the opening of the United States Senate on July 1st, 1864. Almighty and everlasting God, be not angry with us for our sins, which we only confess and deplore, but pardon our offensive offenses and extend to us thy favor. We thank thee for thy goodness and for thy manifold and abundant mercies, including the opportunity to gather tonight to sup and to partake of fellowship. And we beseech thee to guide us to overrule and order all things, and so to cause that nothing shall fail, that the disorders of the land may be speedily healed, that peace and concord may prevail, that truth and righteousness may be established, and that thy church and thy kingdom may flourish in a larger peace and prosperity. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, Happy New Year, and welcome to the 667th meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. We're honored to have Ed Cottom here with us tonight, who will speak to us about the southern journey of a Civil War Marine. Enjoy, enjoy your dinner. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. I'd like to start our program. Uh, Rob Girardi, please come on up. Greetings. If you haven't had a chance, we got the book raffle going tonight. Uh, proceeds are going to the Cedar Creek Battlefield Foundation. The, the raffle, the silent auction, and uh, Bob Stoller selling tapes of the Washington tour from last year. Thank you. And also, with regard to the, uh, to the raffle, um, the roundtable will be matching the contributions that are made by you tonight. Uh, the the roundtable's Battlefield Preservation Fund will be matching those contributions. So please be generous. Bob? Uh, Mr. Girardi already alluded to the, uh, the tape. The tape that he's speaking of is a uh, tape of our Battlefield tour last year. I have been for 18 years taping most of our tours. So you will see lots of Ted Zimmerman in that because he's my father-in-law. But it, seriously, we have, um, we ha and also the hijinks of one Larry Gibb from uh, last year, which is, is must-see TV. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, when you watch it, you'll know. In any event, we are selling these, uh, these tapes. Hal Ardell was, has done a wonderful job at packaging them. Hopefully the photography and the video is anywhere near as good as his packaging. But uh, it sells for $20. It tells you what happens on these tours. And also, uh, we donate all the money to Battlefield Preservation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jerry, please. Speaking of Battlefield Preservation, Last month we mentioned the fact that when you are drawing up your will, you might include a piece for the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago's Foundation, the Battlefield Preservation 
group here. Instruct your attorney to do so as you're drawing up your will or amend your will to put that in it. Another way that you can help battlefield preservation by putting your money where your mouth is, is if you have a life insurance policy that your parents purchased for you back when you were a child. Just a little tiny thing from Prudential or Metropolitan. $500, $1,000, something they paid on every month to the debit salesman who came by to pick up the premium. Well, your estate probably doesn't need that paid up policy right now. You might instruct the company to make it payable to the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago Battlefield Preservation Trust. Changing topics. At the table at which I am sitting over here, the second closest to the window, there are two Marines. Muriel Underwood, please stand up. And joining me this evening is Norm Camp and his wife, Gina. Welcome. Thank you, Jerry. Jerry Allen, would you tell us uh, what we're doing in uh, end of April, beginning of May? Well, first of all, I'm going to be telling you what we're not doing. You're not going to be able to drink or smoke. <laughs> At least not in the hotel room or in one of the hotels. Uh, no, we're, we're, I'm very excited about the Shiloh, Bryce's Crossroads, and Corinth tour that we have coming up. Uh, we've got uh, three and a half full days planned. I hope you uh, sign up for the tour. At this point, we have 58 people who have signed up. Now, we have to make a decision in early February whether to go to three buses or to stay at two buses. So we're probably going to make that decision depending on how many people have signed up at that time. So if you wait too long and we reach the point where we have to limit it to two buses, you might be out of luck. So I would encourage people to sign up if you're going as, as soon as possible. Uh, a reminder, and when I started out, it was, it was joking, but uh, actually, both where Shiloh is located and where our hotel is located in Corinth are dry counties. So if you want to have any hard spirits, you need to bring it with you because it, when we get to Corinth, the nearest liquor store is about 70 miles away. <laughs> All right, so if you want hard, hard spirits, bring it with you. Uh, they do sell beer and wine uh, at, uh, at some of the locations, but, but not all. Now, one thing I want to tell people about planning a tour like this, and I, I, Roger having planned the tour last year, there's always something that, that comes up. And I, I handed out the schedule tonight, and there's a little change. We were going to have fun night at Gilmore's, which is the Shiloh Ridge Country Club. Very nice place. Unfortunately, they had a fire. And uh, their 
starting uh, building. Uh, it, it totally destroyed their kitchen and uh, part of the dining facility. So, so they're rebuilding and they don't think it's going to be ready by May. So we've made other arrangements uh, with another uh, caterer. So rather than going to the country club, we'll actually have dinner at the Econolodge meeting facility with, with a caterer there instead. So, but that's just the way things go when you plan these tours. There's always things that come up and something did. So I hope you join us in uh, our Shiloh tour. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Roger, please. Speaking of making plans and how things can happen that alter those plans, uh, last September, uh, Jerry Warshaw, who some of you remember as a past president of this organization, uh, Chuck Bednar and myself sat down in uh, Jerry Warshaw's nursing home and were planning some note cards that he wanted to produce with caricatures of uh, very familiar Civil War characters. Needless to say, the plans were changed slightly when Jerry Warshaw decided to check out of the project by dying on us. Uh, I'm sure he didn't do it purposefully. Uh, but we're going ahead with the project nonetheless in, in, in Jerry Warshaw's honor, and I think it's worth it. So by the next meeting, we should have these note cards. So don't buy a life supply of note cards until next month, okay? Thank you. All right. Thank you, Roger. Larry, please. I have a uh, short announcement about the uh, Kankakee 17th Annual Civil War Symposium. Uh, every year we have uh, some good speakers at Kankakee in the last part of March. This is going to be on uh, Saturday, March 29th. The cost will be $50. You get lunch with uh, four good speakers. The speakers include uh, Jennifer Weber talking about the Copperheads, Gordy Dahman uh, talking about Jonathan Redman. Uh, who's the uh, U.S. Uh, Surgeon General during the Civil War for the Union. Uh, we have Thomas Cartwright talking about Pat Claiborne, and Peter Cousins talking about uh, item number 10. So if you need more information about it, um, please see me after the meeting. I have plenty of these blurbs. Thank you, Larry. And please uh, take a 10-minute break. Thank you. Uh, let's everybody please gather up. I want to remind the executive committee that there is the winter meeting on January 26th at the History Museum. Any committee chairs please get their reports to me uh, or actually distribute the reports to the entire executive committee and please RSVP if you'll be attending. The entire membership is invited to attend. Just let me know so we have enough uh, coffee and sweet rolls. That's going to be uh, 9 o'clock Saturday, January 26th, Chicago History Museum. Donna, would you please introduce our guests? Good evening. We have 
a new member, Marsha uh, Boblitz, please stand up. She went to the, she went to the ladies' room. Okay, tell Marsha she's very welcome. And there's another new member. I don't have him on my list, but I spoke to him earlier this evening, and his last name starts with Z. All right, call out your name. Yes, of course. Okay, welcome, welcome. <laughs> and tonight we have five guests. Hopefully next month we'll be saying their names as new members. <coughs> Gina Camp, stand up. Norm Camp. Thomas Cunningham. Jan Marthaler. Another visitor to the ladies' room. Kent Marthaler. Well, he went with her. <laughs> okay, I, I do hope that you'll think about joining us because we have a wonderful group. And we look forward to seeing you all again. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Rob, Rob Girardi, the book raffle. Handicap tonight, I have to do this myself. Okay, 671 It's proof. If you buy tickets, you might not win, but if you don't, you never do. That's true. Take your pick. <laughs> pick, pick, the, hey, pick, pick the next one. It's okay. Six seven one zero six one eight. Okay. Take a pick. And select another ticket, please. Oh. Six seven one oh five eight oh zero five eight zero. These are tonight's tickets we're talking. About. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Select whichever one you would like. Pick the next one. Can't go wrong. <laughs> Thank you. 
Zero, these are, somebody may have the Roman numeral tickets tonight. But <laughs> tonight, tonight, Jim. Go on. Here you go. Last but not least, 0564. Tonight we raised $139 from the uh, raffle. Don't forget the silent auction. See me after the meeting. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. And please remember that the uh, Roundtable Battlefield Preservation Committee is matching all of the money raised each week, each month. So thank you for participating. And now time for the quiz. David? Hostile group, isn't it? Yeah, I know. What was it Roger, Rodney Daniel Field used to say? What a crowd. I don't get no respect. <laughs> All righty. Name the ship that ran aground at Hampton Roads during the CSS Virginia's attack. Well, the one ship that survived, if you recall, the fire from the Virginia and that did run aground was the Minnesota. And they were coming back to finish it off next day when the monitor sailed out from behind it. So the answer is C. Name the Civil War Secretary of the Navy. A. Gideon Wells. Some of you, for whatever reason, put down B. James Forrestal who, as I recall, served at the end of World War II and who later committed suicide. Frank Knox uh, was Forrestal's predecessor. And I don't recall Stephen Hurlman ever serving as Secretary of the Navy. <laughs> Happily, no one seems to have put that down. True or false, David Farragut's flagship during the Mississippi campaign was the USS Hartford, yes. Name the commander of the CSS Alabama. A. Raphael Sims. Franklin Buchanan was the original commander of the Virginia, who was, you recall, was wounded during the first day's battle, as I recall, by some sharpshooting Union soldiers. Um, Catesby APR Jones was Buchanan's successor, his second in command, who took charge of the Virginia after Buchanan was wounded. True or false, the ship that sank the Alabama in 1864 was the USS Kearsarge True. There were several 100s. Bill. Cardinal Larry, I didn't know you'd been elevated, Your Eminence. What? White Sox Bruce. And something called WIMP, which I informed is an acronym that stands for Wixonian Information Manipulation Project. Thank you, one and all. All right. Thank you, David. Um, I wasn't able to be here last month for the December meeting. I want to thank Jerry Allen for doing what I understand was an excellent job of running the meeting. Thank you, Jerry. 
And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight. Uh, our distinguished speaker is not only a Civil War scholar, but an author, a lawyer, and what, what better calling can there be? <laughs> he holds a graduate degree in economics from the University of Chicago, so he's, in, in a sense, a local boy. A past president of the Houston Civil War Roundtable, currently president of a foundation that is the largest private source of scholarship funds to the Texas universities. And I, I spoke to Judd Wyatt from the Milwaukee Roundtable today, and he said that uh, he's never seen a PowerPoint preservation before that actually added to the talk. So uh, it's, my, it's my great pleasure to introduce Ed Cottom. Thank you. everybody hear me? Does that work okay? Great. Okay. Well, let me tell you that I'm very, very fortunate to be with you here this evening to discuss this, the southern journey of a Civil War Marine. First, I consider myself fortunate because I truly am delighted to be here at the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. As a Houston boy who got into the subject of Civil War history as an application relatively late in life, it's long been a dream of mine to speak here at the Chicago group. So I, I bring you greetings from your Houston brethren, and I am delighted to be here with you this evening. Secondly, I want to say that I'm really, really fortunate to have this book to present to you this evening and this story, because it is one of those things that's an absolute stroke of luck how it came together. It's one of those things that as a researcher, this kind of stroke of luck, of luck happens to you maybe once in your lifetime. And so let me tell you a little bit about how this came to be. For those of you who, who maybe haven't had a chance to see the book, the, uh, okay. the, uh, uh, the book originated, it's, it's basically the diary of a Civil War Marine, what he called his notebook. And that diary is accompanied by about a hundred different hand-drawn sketches of different places that illustrate this diary. Now, those two things, the words and the pictures, didn't occur together. It came about like this. I wrote a book on the Battle of Galveston, which I do happen to have some copies of this here with me this evening, if you're interested later on. But when I was writing that book, of course I read the Galveston newspapers. And the Galveston newspapers at that time were actually being published in Houston because all the residents of coastal Galveston had fled inland about the 60 miles it takes to get to Houston. Now, in that newspaper, in the fall of 1863, the newspaper started running something very unusual that I stumbled across. And what it was, was the diary of a Pennsylvania Marine. And this Marine had been captured in the war, and his diary had fell, fallen into the hands of the Galveston News editor. And the editor started publishing that diary in a serial fashion on the front page of the newspaper. And it got to be a sensation. And it got to be so popular that they had to run these excerpts, you know, like a month at a time of the diary on the front page for two successive days. And then the next week they'd run the next month and so forth for a number of months. And it was the leading, it was very, very popular in, in the newspaper. So I said, this is, this is unusual. This, this thing is very articulate, very literate. I need to publish this at some point. I put it aside. Years later, about five years later, I was working on a book on the Battle of Sabine Pass. 
And in the course of that research, I stumbled across this series of drawings, and they were in the Naval Academy Library in Annapolis, a thousand miles away. And what happened was I started looking at these diagrams, and they were by a naval surgeon. And this surgeon had just drawn some wonderful pictures of southern towns and, and Union ships and a whole variety of experiences all along the Gulf Coast. And I said, something about these drawings strikes me as familiar. And when I eventually put it together, I realized that this naval surgeon was attached to a ship that was the, essentially the sister ship of the one that the Pennsylvania Marine had written about in his diary. And then, in fact, later, the Pennsylvania Marine ends up being transferred to exactly the same ship. And so when you put these two things together, the diary and the sketches, what you end up with, remarkably enough, is basically the soundtrack that goes to a slideshow of the Civil War all along the Gulf Coast of America and up and down the Mississippi River. And it's a remarkable story uh, that I was just, like I said, happened, uh, fortunate enough to run across. This is one of the drawings that the naval surgeon did here on the first uh, slide here that you see on the right. Now let me tell you a little bit about the story. It's, it's two people, as I said, a naval surgeon and a Pennsylvania Marine. It covers two ships that we'll talk about in a moment, and it covers about two years of the Civil War. They start in New York, end up all along the Gulf Coast and up and down the Mississippi, and they go back and forth for quite a distance, and they cover quite a few very significant events in the war. Now, unfortunately, the one picture I'd like to show you, I don't have. And that is that the Pennsylvania Marine who wrote this diary, we don't have a photograph of him. His name was Henry O. Gusley, and here's a, just a Civil War photograph showing you uh, a Marine uh, of the period, but I don't have a picture of Henry Gusley. But let me tell you a little bit about this young man. He's born in 1837 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Amish country. He's a, about, you know, he's mid-20s during the war. We don't know much about his early education. Uh, his father was a bricklayer, uh, but for some reason this young man became a printer, and he's about the most articulate and literate person you'll ever run across. Even though he's down on ship uh, all along the Gulf Coast, he can remember at will and write out in print pages from Shakespeare and the Bible and all kinds of literary works at will. He's an incredible memory, obviously very articulate and even a humorous uh, person. Just to give you an example, on one occasion some escaped slaves come out to his ship. And he's from Pennsylvania, right? Well, the word that comes across is, and he puts it in his diary, General Lee has taken Pennsylvania. What is Henry Gusley's reaction? He says, I wonder where he's taking it. I hope he has to take it to South Carolina because otherwise I'll have trouble getting home. So he, again, he has a, he has a good uh, sense of humor. And this diary uh, if you get a chance to read it, is, is one of those rare things that's really, truly enjoyable to read. This, this young man was, was a, a great recorder of the events. Now, he enlists in the Marine Corps, which, is, again, we'll talk about in a moment. It's a relatively small uh, corps at the time of the war. In October of 1861, he'll be assigned to the USS Westfield as part of the New Orleans expedition. Okay, this is where the words come from, Henry Gusley, the Pennsylvania Marine. Now, the pictures come from this man, and we do have a picture of him from the Naval Academy Library. This is Dr. Daniel Nestel. Now, Dr. Nestel is from New York. He graduated with a medical degree from the New York University in about 1843, so he's considerably older than Henry Gusley. 
He's appointed an acting assistant surgeon in January 1862, and he will be assigned to the USS Clifton, which is also a gunboat, and it will be part of the New Orleans expedition. So this is the man who does the pictures. He's on board the USS Clifton. At first, uh, Henry Gusley is on board the USS Westfield. Now we'll talk about the, those ships and, and the New Orleans expedition in a moment. But first, let me talk a little bit about the institution of the Marines at the time of the war. I know we have some Marines here, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that. I always like to see uh, folks from the Marine Corps uh, at, at the talk here. But you've got to understand that the institution of the Marines was very different at the time of the war. It was, of course, an institution that even by that time had a proud and distinguished tradition going back well before the war, but it was a very small institution at the time of the war. And it was an institution that was in the process of defining itself. And some of the experiences that men like Henry Gusley would have would help define what the future of the Marines was going to be. In the first place, the Marines are looking for a lot, not a few, good men. And that's because uh, when the war breaks out, a lot of the officer corps ends up going south. Now, the enlisted men, for the most part, stay. Very few of the enlisted men, the Marines, uh, go south to the Confederacy. But they will lose about a third of the officer corps uh, to the south when the war breaks out. And it's even worse than that in terms of numbers, because of the 40 so officers uh, that are left in the Marine Corps after uh, the war breaks out, most of those men are long career serving men. They're fairly elderly. So in terms of actual combat ready, uh, talented men capable of serving, there are relatively few in, in, in the Corps. So as a result, uh, Congress and the President will act fairly swiftly and they'll decide to raise the number of enlisted men to a total of about 3,074. And that's one of the enlisted groups that, uh, in which Henry Gusley, Gusley will join. So he'll be in this first wave of people going into the Marines. But really, the Marines are never a large number of men during the war. Uh, by some estimates, there are not more than, say, 4,000 of them serving at uh, any time during the war. They're relatively small in numbers. The other thing is they, they do serve with great distinction at a variety of points during the war. For example, there will be Marines uh, that will be part of the expedition coming to the re relief of Fort Sumter. There will be Marines that uh, play a very prominent combat role in the Battle of First Manassas. They will play an important role at the action at Fort Pickens in Florida. They will play an important role at Pamlico Sound in the Carolinas. But the problem is that at this point in military service history of, of this country, the, the, the Marines do not have a specifically defined role yet in terms of combat, and that will be a continuing issue throughout the war. For the most part, although there are some instances where they serve ashore in, in combat functions, for the most part, Marines during the war, as you'll see with Henry Gusley's service, end up serving three primary functions. The first is their traditional role, which is kind of they're on the military police on board the ships. That's one of their functions, one of their key originating functions. The second thing is they are very prominently uh, part of the gun crews on board these ships. And when we see these bombardments and these actions that you'll see here in a moment, the Marines are involved in almost every one of those actions very prominently in those gun crews. The third thing is, is that when there's anything to do with the shore, whether it's picket duty, escorting dignitaries, 
actually going ashore in, in some combat function, the Marines will lead the way. But there's no specific role in terms of an amphibious force or anything like that. Uh, all that has yet to be defined in the, in the Marines at this point. Okay, now we'll talk about New Orleans, because at the beginning of the war, when the military planners all roll out their maps and try to figure out where are we going to attack, and on the Confederate side, where do we need to defend the most, one city comes to the top of everybody's list, and that's the city of New Orleans, or as my cousin over there says, New Orleans. But uh, again, the South's largest city, certainly the most important from an economic standpoint, and particularly strategic because of its place on the Mississippi River. It was the leading target. But you know, at the outset of the war, everybody kind of wrote off New Orleans as a serious practical objective. It looked like, like this arrow is showing, that what was going to have to happen is that if you were going to attack New Orleans, New Orleans would have to be attacked only at the end of a very, very long campaign coming down the Mississippi River in which Vicksburg would be captured and all those cities athwart the Mississippi would have to be captured. And New Orleans would be the final thing that would be captured at the end of the war. That was the way it played out in almost all of the scenarios that would be run. But you and I know that didn't happen. And instead, what would happen would, this, would be the Southern approach. And what happened is that the, uh, some of the military planners, and, and David Dixon Porter was involved in this as well, uh, got to looking at the situation, and they decided that perhaps something could be done to come from the South and take New Orleans at an early stage of the war. But it would not be easy. And the reason it would not be easy is that below New Orleans, about 75 miles as the river flows, uh, 75 miles below New Orleans, there were two immense fortifications that flanked the Mississippi River. And these had been built before the war. Uh, they were brick and masonry fortifications for the most part, and they mounted a lot of guns. Here on this bank, we have Fort Jackson. On the other side, we have Fort St. Philip. Uh, between them, they mounted at least 125, possibly as many as 150 guns. And to make matters worse, there was a large iron chain stretched across the Mississippi, anchored by a series of sunken uh, uh, ship hulks. And that would effectively prevent the passage of warships up the Mississippi River. Everybody thought those forts were impregnable. And the reason they were impregnable was not only were they, were they large forts with a lot of guns and, and really excellent defenses, but the ground around those, those forts is incredibly swampy. I mean, it literally is just like quicksand if you go very far from those fortifications. And the result of that would be that you couldn't really land a large body of infantry. You couldn't really put into place huge siege artillery like would eventually be used at Petersburg, for example. That could not happen below the forts of New Orleans. So they were thought, again, kind of written off as targets until uh, Porter and some others came up with an innovative approach. And their approach was going to be, we won't put the guns on shore. We'll put them on ships that are specially designed for this purpose, and we will effectively float our entire siege artillery into position. And that was the origin of David Dixon Porter's mortar flotilla and the mortar schooners. What they did was there had been about 20 small cruiser-type vessels that had been purchased by the federal government. And they were quickly made into basically floating batteries, and on each one of these ships, as you see in this photograph, was placed a large 
13 inch mortar. Now when I say large, I mean these are really big guns. These mortars, four feet wide, five feet long, imagine that much iron. They weighed 18,000 pounds. They fired shells, each one of the shells, mind you, weighed 216 pounds, carried 11 pounds of powder. Their expected range was over 4,000 yards. So these are really big guns that fire really big shells a long, long way. Now, as you can imagine, with guns this heavy, and of course you have to carry the powder to service those guns, you have to carry, carry all the ordnance to go with those guns, uh, the schooners that are carrying these things around are really heavy. And if you're going to fire those guns off the deck of a ship, you had better reinforce it pretty carefully. And when this is first broached to the Navy, somebody does a calculation and figures out that if they fire this mortar from the deck of the typical schooner, it will be at the bottom of the river within 10 firings. So what they do is they take wooden, basically a web here, and they make shock absorbers that go from the deck of these ships all the way to the keel. And they're very, very innovative in the way they do this to absorb the pounding that these uh, ships are going to take from these heavy guns being fired. And so the mortar schooners are very, very heavy. They carry these guns, they carry all the powder and ordnance, and they have this special reinforcement. Now one thing they don't carry is steam engines because they would make these ships far too heavy and also because you don't want to have anything that has a flame associated with it on these kinds of vessels. These kind of vessels are floating bombs, as one of them called it. In fact, they got to be known as the bomb squadron because of this. So effectively, they put masts on them and put sails on these ships, but for the most part, they were going to have to be towed wherever they went. Now, again, we, we talked about these guns and what they were capable of firing, but the truth is that the men were, that were going to serve on the crews of these, these uh, guns had no experience firing them. They arrived in the Gulf of Mexico having never fired these guns even once. And when they finally got around to firing these guns for the first time, as you can imagine, there were some tremendous surprises. This is uh, one of the northern newspapers that, that did a pretty accurate engraving of the officers behind the gun the first time it was fired. Now, in actuality, what happened is this. Uh, the officer that was leading this gun crew uh, had, they had a drill, and they, they were all told exactly what to do. They were to stand, you know, just a little bit back in back of the piece. They were to stand with their ears open, their mouths open, and on tiptoes. But that was all they were told to do. But the officer said, well, let's move back a little further just in case, because we really don't know what this thing's going to do. So they fired the gun, and all the officers were watching to see where the shell would go and where it would explode. Then they heard an Irishman named Pat who was in back of this thing. And he let out a very colorful epithet and said that if he had stood where they originally told him to stand, his legs would have been taken off. And his account was entirely accurate because the gun had recoiled off this circular platform that revolved to give it its angle. The gun recoiled over here and was protruding over the water and almost fell overboard. The ship was listing by 10 degrees. Every hinge on the boat had sprung and uh, tremendous damage had been done to the ship. And what had happened was they hadn't fastened the gun down properly. 
they fixed that throughout the entire fleet, and eventually the men got accurate enough with these weapons that they could fire them. At first, they fired them. They could fire it once every 10 minutes. Eventually, they got to where they could fire it once every five minutes, and they got pretty accurate in loading and firing these weapons. But it was a trial and error type thing because these were big guns, and it was difficult to, to maneuver them, as you might imagine. Now, again, we've talked about these schooners and how heavy they were and how difficult to maneuver they were. The only way you could maneuver them uh, was with a specially designed group of steamers to haul them into position. And so Porter and the other people that were in command of this squadron looked around, and they finally ended up getting the ideal series of steamers to handle these mortar schooners. And what they turned out to be were Staten Island ferry boats. So they took two ferry boats, the Westfield and the Clifton that we're talking about tonight are Staten Island ferry boats that are taken by the U.S. government. They're armored on the upper part of their decks with some armor, and they are used as the steamer division of Porter's flotilla. Here's one of them right here, the USS Westfield. Now, again, it's bought from Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, for $90,000 in 1861, weighs a little over 800 pounds, mounts six guns, including a 100-pounder Parrot rifle, which is a big gun, a 100-pounder. So that's a big gun on this ship. And the Westfield is, is uh, shown here in this drawing. The sister ship, uh, uh, Henry Gussie, the Marine, is on the Westfield initially. This is Dr. Nestel's ship, the USS Clifton, and this is the drawing he did of the Clifton. It's essentially a sister ship, weighs almost the same thing, bought from Cornelius Vanderbilt for the same price. It has a few more guns, but they're a little smaller. And the biggest gun it has is a 30-pounder Parrot rifle. Now, just as a trivia thing, let me tell you this. Do you all see this thing up on top that looks kind of like a diamond? That's called a walking beam. And what happens in this type of steam engine is called a walking beam engine. But the, the piston that comes up from the engine makes that thing rock up and down. And then the other side of the rocker makes a circular motion that makes the side paddle wheels on these two ships go around. And that's the way the, the motion is transmitted from the engine to the paddle wheels. Well, if you wanted to visit the, uh, the diamond-shaped object you see there, the walking beam of the USS Clifton, it's in a park in Beaumont, Texas today on the riverfront. So there, there it is. It's the one object that has survived basically intact from the USS Clifton. And we'll talk about why it happens to be in Beaumont uh, later in the talk. All right, we have the New Orleans expedition. We have now the, the plan to go down and try to subdue the forts below New Orleans. We have the Westfield. Uh, with Henry Gusley on board. We have the Clifton with Dr. Nestel on board. They're going to be escorting this series of about 20 mortar schooners down the, Gulf, uh, down the Atlantic coast and into the Gulf of Mexico to, to meet with David Farragut at the mouth of the Mississippi. That's the plan. Now, there were some trepidations about this because some of the people in the Naval Service were skeptical that these ferry boats, armored as they were, could even reach the Gulf of Mexico. They were not designed for the open waters. People said they would sink almost immediately, and that was about to be tested. Here is, by the way, this was such a big sailing from New York on February the 22nd of 1862 that it was captured in Harper's Weekly, and, and the USS Westfield is the very end of that line as they come out of New York Harbor. But almost immediately after they leave, there's a tremendous storm in the Atlantic. The ships are scattered. Uh, some of these steamers suffer some fairly serious damage and have to limp into various ports to get repairs, uh, but eventually they will, in fact, get all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. 
But uh, here's, here's a drawing that Dr. Nestel made of the Clifton and the storm. And you can begin to see this man uh, was an incredibly talented artist, captures a lot of details of these vessels and these cities. Uh, they're some of the best drawings we have of a lot of these places. As they come down the Atlantic coast, they'll stop at Port Royal, South Carolina uh, in March. And uh, we'll actually stop there and see on the beaches the mounting of a Union expedition on the beaches with a lot of tents and a, and a lot of Union soldiers. They'll eventually reach Key West, Florida. And when they get reach Key West, uh, Dr. Nestel will do this, this uh, drawing of Key West that kind of gives you an idea of how detailed the drawings are that he's going to do of these various uh, cities. Now, Key West, of course, is under Union control. And you can see on the right, there's a, a drawing of uh, Fort Taylor. And Fort Taylor was a huge fort. It mounted about 200 guns. So it's a, it's a very large fortification uh, that's, that's under Union control uh, when the uh, Clifton and the Westfield get there. Now, from Key West, this is a map that Dr. Nestel did. They will go across to the mouth of the Mississippi. It'll take from the 13th to the 18th. So it takes about five days to get from Key West to the mouth of the Mississippi. And there they, they, they discover that there has been a tremendous foul up in the Navy's plans. Because the Navy has sent down as part of the expedition to go with Farragut some very heavy ships, including the frigates Pensacola and Mississippi. The problem with this really arises out of a pure physical problem, and that is this. When the Mississippi or any body of water that's a flowing body of water reaches something like the Gulf of Mexico, that river hits the Gulf of Mexico and it immediately starts depositing the mud and the silt that has carried that long distance. And when it deposits those silts where it hits the, the water, it forms a sandbar, or in a, which eventually will become the delta, of course. But the sandbar comes up off the bottom uh, within a, you know, a reasonably short distance from the surface of the water. And that means that you can only get s ships of a certain draft or depth into the Mississippi River. And the problem is that the Mississippi and the Pensacola and some of the other ships are too big to go over the sandbars into the Mississippi. And it looks like Farragut's going to be deprived of some of its best ships unless something can be done. And what happens is they turn to the fighting ferry boats, the Westfield and the Clifton, to haul these ships physically over these sandbars into the Mississippi. And so they'll spend about a week doing that. And they use enormous ropes called hawsers to pull these ships, you know, particularly when the tide gets favorable, over the sandbars into the Mississippi. And eventually they will succeed in getting these ships, the largest ships that have ever been in the Mississippi River, into the river. But it's not without an awful lot of effort. Here's Dr. Nestel's drawing of them trying to pull those frigates over the sandbar. And to give you an idea, this is not only difficult, it's dangerous. Uh, on one occasion with the Pensacola, uh, the Westfield and Clifton are pulling on the hawsers to pull it over the sandbar. One of the hawsers breaks, and it recoils, and it hits the Pensacola, killing one man and breaking the legs of three others. So this is difficult work. And Porter will write back that the Westfield and the Clifton are the most effective vessels in these waters. And they will really save the bacon for the New Orleans expedition. Now, if you're a Marine on board, you're, of course, doing your share with the ropes and everything. But you're also doing a lot of other things. Uh, because the Marines 
have to do a lot of things for themselves, and all the sailors on board these vessels do. They have a lot of jobs, and everybody, uh, you, you don't think about a lot of these jobs, but they learn to do them fairly quickly. Henry, Henry Gusley writes, the life of a Marine is a diversification of numerous tedious, useful, and even scientific occupations. He is his own washerwoman. He must be an adept with a needle in order to keep his clothes in a tidy condition. He's a burnisher of fine brass and a polisher of steel in order that his accoutrements may pass inspection. One day, or rather one hour, he's a soldier, the next a sailor, and when the ship is going through the process of coaling, he may be found upon the coal whip and be denominated a coal heaver. So he does a little bit of everything, including hauling the coal. And this is one of those dirty jobs that you don't hear much about, but these men did an awful lot of it. And it was a horrible job. Here's an actual photograph of some coal heavers on the Mississippi. And you'd have to pull these bags full of coal onto the ship. And the trouble was these bags leaked a little bit and there was coal dust that would basically fill both the inside and the outside of these vessels. And uh, Gusley records that the coal dust hadn't even settled from the last coaling before it was time to take on more coal. So this was a continual miserable job that all these men had to take turns doing. So they're doing all this and they're loading up with the uh, supplies they're going to need to mount the expedition against New Orleans. Now all this will be kind of uh, centralized at a place called Pilot Town, which is at the mouth of the Mississippi. And it's just what, it name, what its name implies. This is the place you picked up your pilot to take you up the Mississippi to New Orleans before the war. And so Pilot Town, they'll make the final preparations for the expedition against the forts. And the preparations are these. You, you remember I showed you the, the, the mortar schooner had this tall mast on it with sails. Well, they're not going to use the sails anymore. The sails are down, and, and they're going to be hauled into position. But those masts make great positions from which you can, you can uh, take measurements and see where your shot is falling and really make the fine-tuning on your mortar. But the problem is those masts also are like painting a target on your ship. So what they decide to do is to take river mud and put it all along the outside of the hulls to kind of camouflage them and to camouflage the masts on those mortar schooners they're going to take tree limbs and put them all up and down the border schooners. And this is what David Porter will call the masquerade of war. And so as these 20 mortar schooners are hauled up the Mississippi by the steamers, Henry Gusley records that it was really interesting seeing what looked like a forest going up the Mississippi River. And so they're hauled up into position below the forts. Now, let me tell you about the normal mode of operations of these attacks that these guys are in. Uh, the mortar flotilla, when they're brought up into position anywhere, what usually happens is the steamers go out front, and they'll go close to the target, and they'll actually shell the target a little bit, not really seriously trying to take it, but just to try to get an idea where the Confederate guns are and to get some angles and some elevations and some ranges because that way they can situate these mortar schooners where they need to be to play their guns most effectively on the Confederate fortifications. So as you can see here from Dr. Nestel's drawing, the Westfield and the Clifton and the Harriet Lane, which is another steamer in this division, they will go up close to the forts on April the 13th and they'll launch just a preliminary attack to gather the information. And from that information, they will then haul the mortar schooners into position and they'll put them all along the banks of the Mississippi on different sides close to the shore and they'll, they'll anchor there. Now, 
again, these border schooners are in, they've taken them in such a hurry that they really don't even have names yet for the most part. They have some names that might have been the ship beforehand, but for military purposes, they're just numbers. And so Dr. Nestel has them numbered basically 1 to 20 along the banks. And so what happens is from on April 18th, they will start a bombardment of these forts. And that bombardment will go on night and day, almost continually from April the 18th through the 24th, basically a week of bombardment, night and day of those forts. And it's an immense thing, and you can imagine being in the middle of this bombardment like these guys were, that that was a, an immensely stressful and interesting experience. One of the schooners will be actually sunk by Confederates uh, returning fire with a rifle gun, uh, but the, the bombardment will continue uh, notwithstanding that casualty. Finally, at 3.30 a.m. on the 24th, David Farragut will decide he's had enough. The mortar schooners are almost out of ammunition, and he's decided that whatever effect they're going to have on the forts has now been achieved, and he's going to make a great gamble, and that is to try to run his fleet past these forts below New Orleans. So they'll cut the chain at night, and, uh, and what happens is the mortar flotilla is going to use the last of their ammunition, basically. They're going to train it on the water batteries of these forts to try to provide basically covering fire. And the steamers will go forward to assist in providing covering fire for the fleet as Farragut makes this incredibly daring run past the forts of New Orleans. And it proves to be successful, but it is not without incident. And what happens is this, the Confederates, you know, they have a little naval effort above, above the forts, and the forts are, of course, firing, and they also do something clever. They are using fire rafts against the Federal fleet. And these are, like, you know, the name implies, they're basically, for the most part, log rafts uh, that are set on fire and just let float down the river, and they serve two purposes. The first is they're almost like primitive searchlights. They're letting the, the fire go down the river to provide light so they can see the Federal ships. The second thing is they're hoping that some of these fire rafts will go up alongside the Federal fleet and may set some of these ships on fire. But they hadn't counted on one thing, and that is that the Westfield and the Clifton are Staten Island ferry boats. One of the things they were equipped to do is to put out fires in New York Harbor. They have on board hoses and pumps, and so they're quickly put to work, as this uh, northern newspaper depicts the Westfield, putting out these fire rafts, and they don't serve their intended purpose. So uh, Westfield and Clifton stay behind with the rest of the mortar fleet, and eventually, on April the 27th, uh, a truce will come, uh, they will have a truce, and eventually the forts below New Orleans will surrender to the mortar flotilla. The Marines from the Clifton and Westfield will take possession of Fort Jackson on April the 28th of 1862. Here is a, uh, a drawing by Dr. Nestel of the fort after it's suffered all this damage and the Marines take possession. Uh, it's, it's one of the great achievements of the war, no doubt about it. Now, just, just as an aside, I, I know you all have heard about Katrina and uh, the effects it had on the city of New Orleans. This fort was incredibly devastated by that, uh, that storm. And in fact, there's water inside the fort now and the walls are breached. And it's, it's in very, very bad shape right now, as are a number of the places I'm going to show you. But this is one of the best drawings that we have of the fort after the, after the, uh, the battle. The Clifton will eventually go up to the city of New Orleans, will arrive at the wharf, 
April the 29th, and again, the capture of New Orleans in this fashion sent shockwaves all across the country, particularly in the South, to see New Orleans fall so quickly uh, and relatively easily uh, was a tremendous blow to the uh, Confederate war effort. Now from New Orleans, uh, again, these guys never really know where they're going to be the next week, and they're constantly surprised at how much movement they do. The Clifton, after being at New Orleans and being part of this expedition, they're sent back to Ship Island, which is right off the coast of Mississippi, and this will be kind of the central base for the Union Navy's war effort down in the Gulf of Mexico. They'll, they'll go back to Ship Island and, and, and have some R&R &R and get supplies and then go back to the various stations along uh, the Gulf. But they're at uh, Ship Island off the Mississippi coast on May 5th. Now from there, they're sent back into Louisiana and in particular to Lake Pontchartrain, which is the big body of water just north of the city of New Orleans. They come in through a kind of a corkscrew passage called the Rigolets. It's spelled Rigolets, but the people of New Orleans pronounce it Rigolets, so we'll honor their wishes tonight. And here they pass Fort Pike, which by now is in the hands of uh, Union Marines. This is a wonderfully preserved fort. Uh, it was damaged with Katrina, but uh, still a marvelous fort if you ever get a chance to go down there and see it. Uh, but they'll go to the city of Madisonville and deliver some messages, and then they'll go up the Pearl River. Now the Pearl River is the river that basically is the dividing line between Mississippi and Louisiana down there. And they go up that river about 70 miles looking for some rebel steamers. Uh, they don't find rebel steamers that they've heard about, but they do find some interesting things while they're up the uh, Pearl River. And uh, this, would, this one was a very interesting drawing when I first came across it. Not because of the scenery, because the scenery is kind of uh, nondescript. But look at that thing down in the lower right-hand corner. You recognize that? I know it's hard for some of you in the back to see. This is an alligator. And it's undoubtedly the first alligator that Henry Gusley and Dr. Daniel Nostell had ever seen. And as you can tell from the crudeness of this drawing, Dr. Nostell probably didn't get too very close to this alligator. <laughs> but, uh, and, and again, some people are better at drawing scenery and, uh, than, than people and, and things too, but uh, it is interesting that, they, that both uh, Gusley and the doctor recorded uh, this particular alligator because they were pretty, pretty interested in seeing it. Now, they'll go up the Pearl River far enough that they get kind of bogged down They'll send one of the steamers, the Satcham, which Dr. Nostell drew here ahead, and uh, the Confederates will ambush that ship, uh, and, and the ship will suffer some casualties. They'll have to turn around and come back out of the river, and that's the last time they go into the, the Pearl River. They're back at Ship Island following that. And again, when they go back to Ship Island, we have these wonderful drawings that Dr. Nostell did of the cavalry and the troops, and eventually there'll be a big uh, prison on uh, Ship Island that uh, Southern prisoners will be sent to. But they're building a big fort called Fort Massachusetts during this entire period. Now from Ship Island, they'll go to the entrance to Mobile Bay. And I show you this drawing. They, they're starting to get the ranges of the forts on Mobile, at Mobile Bay. There's Fort Gaines and Fort Morgan, which are very large forts there at the entrance to that bay, kind of like we saw it at New Orleans. And so the the Union Navy is starting to feel like maybe we can take on these forts as well. And they'll send the steamers over and some of the mortar schooners to try to get some preliminary uh, ranges on the forts. I show you this drawing just because it kind of gives you uh, some ideas of how the doctor might have done these drawings. Because 
I, I put these captions in here, but underneath those captions are just these words or letters that represent the names of these steamers. And what he would do is just put the name like C, W, J for the positions of these steamers, and he might draw one of them, but he would later go in and fill these in. It just so happens that on this one drawing, he never got around to, to filling uh, those, those steamers in, but that's how he, how he did these drawings. And they fire at the, the forts here at Mobile Bay uh, without any real result other than the fact that the Confederates are very alarmed by this firing and they'll eventually evacuate uh, uh, the forts around Pensacola Bay and pull back their horns and start trying to fortify uh, this, this fort. But again, this is 1862. This is two years before uh, those forts will eventually be taken by Farragut. This is one of the forts just to give you an idea of the kind of of forts that they were dealing with. This is considerably later, of course, after it suffered a lot of damage, but they are big forts. Now, from Mobile Bay, again, the Confederates have evacuated the, the forts at Pensacola Bay, so the Clifton will go back in to Pensacola Bay, and there are basically three forts in kind of a triangle there at the entrance to Pensacola Bay, Forts McCree, Pickens, and Barracas. And so on May 31st, 1862, Dr. Nestel sits down and he does a drawing of where they are in Pensacola Bay. And he does it in a panorama, looking south at the top of the drawing and looking north at the bottom of the drawing. And you can see, again, these are some of the best drawings we have of these cities because they show so much detail. And there was a lot to see in Pensacola Bay. One of the things that, that uh, they recorded, which was very fascinating these men, was a giant water spout that they saw off of Santa Rosa Island. And Dr. Nestel uh, obligingly drew us what is effectively a tornado over the water. And it was impressive to everybody that was in the Navy. They go to the town of Pensacola, but aren't allowed ashore because there have been some embarrassing incidents with the sailors that have gone ashore. And the mayor has forbidden them from coming into the town, so that doesn't work. And so eventually they'll turn around and leave Pensacola Bay, and they'll go back to what they think is the ideal tourist destination to finally give these men some shore leave and it's the city of New Orleans. And there they'll go on June the 7th of 1862, this city that they have helped to conquer. And unfortunately for touristic purposes, the very first sight that greets, greets Henry Gusley as he goes ashore is that he sees a man hanging from the, the roof of the U.S. Mint. And what has happened is General Benjamin Butler has taken a gambler named William Mumford, who had had the effrontery to pull down the U.S. flag on the Mint, and he has had him hung from that very roof just to show the people that he means business and is going to keep order. Uh, and as you can imagine, getting off the ship and seeing this uh, was not the ideal introduction to the scenic charms of the city of New Orleans. The other thing was that Gussie didn't have any serious money, and he noticed that that was uh, uh, kind of an obstacle in New Orleans, as it still is today. Uh, from New Orleans, they'll go up the Mississippi River, uh, as you go up the Mississippi River, some of these bluffs start appearing, and at one of the first bluffs they hit on the Mississippi side, uh, they have come to Ellis's Cliff, and, and at Ellis's Cliff there's a Confederate artillery position that fires on them. Uh, the ships will return fire against that battery and silence the Confederate battery. Uh, as they record it, the only uh, casualty they'll take during this engagement is that the pet dog on board the USS Owasco is killed, a loss that was uh, felt heavily in the fleet. From Ellis's Cliff, they'll continue up to the city of Vicksburg. And again, this is kind of like Mobile Bay. 
They're doing some preliminary work that will later come in very, very useful when Grant decides to besiege this city. But for now, it's an, uh, they're just trying to uh, get some ranges and to launch an attack from the water. And what has happened is, here's the city of Vicksburg here on this bend. Uh, there's a northern fleet coming down from the north under Commodore Davis, and then Porter's mortar flotilla is anchored below the city, and they fire on the city of Vicksburg. And they'll launch a bombardment, one of these standard things. The steamers will go in and get some ranges, then they'll line up the mortar schooners along the side there. You can see them on the right side against the bank of the river, and they will bombard the city of Vicksburg. And you can see the, the shells bursting in the air over the city of Vicksburg in this drawing. And they'll, they'll carry on like that for about three days without any serious uh, damage to the city. Not, nothing really changes here. Uh, what does happen that's kind of interesting is <coughs> the Confederates can tell what's going on with these mortar schooners. And so they decide uh, that they're going to send an infantry group. And they're going to send this infantry position down uh, and try to fire on these mortar schooners, possibly even try to take some of them from the shore. What they had not counted on was that one of their own defensive things was going to work against them. And that was this ground, like the ground below the forts uh, at New Orleans, is very, very swampy. And uh, the, the people on the, the, the sailors on the mortar schooners could hear these uh, Confederates coming long, long away. They could hear them sloshing and slurping in the mud. So they turned their guns on the shore and fired. And in the morning, the Marines are sent ashore to see what's there. And all they find in this muddy uh, banks along the way are a forest of shoes that are, for the most part, unoccupied by their owners. The men have had to run away and leave their shoes. There are a few men who have actually gotten completely entangled in the mud. And here's one of the rebel prisoners that Dr. Nestel drew. Uh, it was a Tennessean that they captured. Uh, I showed this to a Tennessee group once, and they none of them liked thinking that this might have been one of their ancestors. So. <laughs> Now, one of the things that happens at this time is the Confederates have an ironclad that's very famous, of course, the CSS Arkansas. And the Arkansas will come down the Mississippi River, guns blazing on both sides, passing right through the Federal fleet. It's a big thing. It makes uh, all the Civil War naval accounts, and you read a lot about it. What's interesting about this is uh, if you read the Gusley's account and, and see what's going on here, None of them have the slightest idea what's going on. They hear a lot of firing. They, they see all the smoke in the distance, but they have no clue what is going on when this famous naval battle is taking place right in the middle of uh, their operation. Now, again, from uh, Vicksburg, they'll go back to New Orleans. Uh, they're going to start to get a, a little bit more shore leave there at New Orleans, they think, and when suddenly they are summoned back to the ship and head off immediately because what has happened is the Confederates have attacked Baton Rouge. And on August 5th, 1862, uh, they're narrowly repelled, and so uh, the Federal fleet is sent up to Baton Rouge to help support in the defense of that city. And here is a drawing of the city of Baton Rouge. You can still see some of the landmarks that are there today. And from your quiz question, the USS Hartford, the flagship, is shown right there in the center of that, uh, that drawing there at, uh, the Bat at Baton Rouge. Now, where would you think they might logically go from Baton Rouge? Well, they're coming back down the river, and on their way back down the river, uh, Farragut has given them a, an important objective. He has told them that they are to stop at the cities of Donaldson, uh, Plaquemine and Donaldsonville, and they are to tell the residents of those cities to evacuate because their cities are about to be burnt by the U.S. Navy. 
Now, what has happened is that uh, he's warned them before that if they fire on federal shipping, their cities are going to be burned. And they have continued, or somebody in the city has continued to fire on federal ships. So now he means to make good on his threat. So uh, Westfield and Clifton deliver these messages. As you can imagine, they are not well received uh, by the mayor and the inhabitants of those cities. Uh, they, they give the messages. They take back the responses. Uh, Farragut will eventually relent on the city of Plaquemine, uh, but Donaldsonville will in fact be burned. And here's a photograph from the Illinois Historical Society collection, by the way, that shows that city after it was burned. From uh, the Mississippi, they will head back to Pensacola Bay. So we're in the Mississippi River one week. The next week, we're back in Florida, and they're back in Pensacola Bay. And here, in Pensacola Bay, happens one of the most dramatic things that happens to Henry Gusley during the war. Now, it's nothing you probably would think of. But what happens is that on September 1st of the 1862, the U.S. Navy ends the rum ration for the sailors on board these ships. Now, let me tell you, this was a dramatic event. This is a drawing by another naval surgeon of the last toast that they had on board the Navy warships to the end of the, of the grog ration. Now, let me, let me tell you, we don't think about this as being much of an event today. This was big news in the, in the naval fleet. Now, Henry Gusley records the Battle of New Orleans in about a page and a half. The end of the spirit ration, he goes on and on and on and keeps coming back to it. When is Congress going to come to their senses? This is, you know, an outrage and surely must be addressed. I mean, this, this is something that really bothers these guys a lot. But that happens while they're at uh, Pensacola Bay. Next thing we know, of course, they're back at Ship Island uh, in September of 1862. Here they are building Fort Massachusetts, which will eventually become a big fort on, uh, on Ship Island. But that's what it looks like during some of the early stages. Now, from Florida, they will be sent as part of a Texas expedition. And, and the reason they're sent as part of a Texas expedition is uh, that Abraham Lincoln has received intelligence that the French are putting Maximilian on the throne down in Mexico and that they are making plans to uh, take Texas from the Confederacy and the Union and make it a, into a French colony. He determines to resist that and so he's going to send the federal fleet down there and the, the logical place for them to occupy is the main city in Texas at the time which is the port city of Galveston. So the federal fleet will enter into Galveston Bay on October the 4th. They will march the relatively short distance over to the uh, Custom House and raise the flag. But as they go by the entrance to Galveston Bay, I want to call your attention to this little fort. It only has one gun, and that's all the Confederates have. And uh, the Federals fire one uh, barrage at that fort. The Confederates spike that gun and leave it. And Gusley and everybody in the Federal fleet makes fun of that. They say, ye lone gun of defense of Galveston Harbor, how the Confederates have turned and run. What he does not realize is that in that fort is an Irish company called the Davis Guard, and that company will come back to see them in very dramatic fashion in just another year. Okay, as I said, they raise the U.S. flag at the uh, Galveston Custom House, which still stands today on October the 9th. Very dramatic event. It looks like Galveston is going to stay in federal hands like all the other big cities that uh, the Federals will occupy, but as we'll see, that's not going to happen. But uh, they'll practice firing their 100-pounder rifled gun at some of the Confederate cavalry in the distance and, uh, you know, get their marksmanship down good with that gun. 
but uh, they're told that they should maybe make some forays to the western part of the state, and so they'll head on down the coast. But before they head on down the coast, Henry Gusley records something that is his main complaint about Texas, and that is mosquitoes. And he, he says something I think is fairly, fairly humorous and very interesting. He says, even throughout the daytime, these lively little insects keep tormenting us. The mosquitoes of the Mississippi are nowhere beside them, either in numbers or pertinacity. And he says this, I think this is a great thing. He says, confound them and confound the man who wouldn't get up in the middle of the night and burn his shirt to give light to curse them by. <laughs> now that's a dramatic thing, that says a lot. And, and having been in some of these uh, clouds of mosquitoes, you can certainly understand why they would say that. But from Galveston, they'll go down to Matagorda Bay, another great big bay on the coast of Texas. Uh, they'll go past the lighthouse that still stands there today and they'll be received very differently in two Texas towns that front on Matagorda Bay. The first is Indianola, our new powder horn, very near the entrance to the bay. They're very courteously received there. They love the people of Indianola. They're well received. They come ashore and have a feast. The reason is that this city had been recently settled by German immigrants, and the Germans in Texas, for the most part, are very strong supporters of the Union effort, very resistant to secessionism. Now, they'll go further up the bay, and they'll go to Port Lavaca. Now, Lavaca in Spanish means cow, and uh, it is a cow town, and there are no German immigrants to speak of in Lavaca, and there they have a completely different reaction. There's a small Confederate artillery company, and what ends up happening is they refuse to surrender, and so Westfield and Clifton have a, a battle, a bombardment that will last two days. October the 31st and November the 1st of 1862. And again, this one little drawing preserved in the Annapolis Library is the only thing we have that shows Port Lavaca at that time or this battle. Now, during the course of this battle, something happens that's very dramatic for the Westfield, and that is that this 100-pounder rifle, that big gun we talked about, it blows up. And it turns out this is a recurring problem with this type of gun. Uh, they're not uh, well made to withstand the pounding of, uh, you know, repeated use. And so that gun blowing up happens again and again throughout the Federal fleet. This is a depiction of one of these occasions in 1864 when the gun on board the Juniata blows up, killing five men and wounding eight more. But you know, the Westfield is a lucky ship, or that's what all the sailors on board say. The Westfield's a lucky ship because nobody is hurt during this explosion at all. So they, they, they last out of that. But the Westfield's luck is about to be very, very seriously tested. Now, we arrive at Thanksgiving on uh, 1862. And I want to talk to you a moment about Thanksgiving. We all think about it. We all think about it as an enduring institution. But did you know there was no national Thanksgiving at the time of the Civil War? Thanksgiving, in fact, was just a thing that was proclaimed by some, not all, uh, Northeastern governors. It was a state institution, and it was by no means universal. Uh, Gusley knew about it. Gusley celebrated it. The Federal Fleet celebrated it, but it was not a national recurring thing like it is today. But what they did in, in uh, Galveston Harbor in 1862 was this. Gusley records, the ship was gaudily dressed with ensigns and signals of different colors, and no unnecessary work required of the men. The roast turkey, pumpkin pie, and donuts, so prevalent and indispensable around home in the celebration of that day, were easily dispensed with by us and for most urgent reasons. They didn't have anything like that. I think it's interesting that they celebrated with donuts back home, though. I'd never heard that before, and I really don't even know what that means, but it's, it's interesting. Uh, 
But he says, perhaps, however, our thanks were just as hearty upon a fill of biscuit and pork as they would have been on more sumptuous fare. And that brings up an interesting thing. What did Civil War sailors and Marines eat? Well, we're very lucky. We actually have the published menu of the USS Clifton. And we know what they ate, and they had a set thing for every day of the week. And let me tell you what your menu would be if you were an enlisted man serving on the Clifton uh, today. Monday, pork and beans. Tuesday, salt horse, which is salted beef, and duff, which is a flour pudding-like substance. Okay, so salt horse and duff on Tuesday. Wednesday, pork and bean and pickles. I don't know if they were Christmas pickles. They might have been. We just don't know. But they were pickles, pork and bean and pickles. That's Wednesday. Thursday, preserved roast beef, desiccated potatoes, and butter. Okay, Friday, tonight, if you were on the USS Clifton tonight, you'd be having a wonderful meal of pork and beans and pickles again. They'd repeat them about every two days. Saturday, we're back to salt, horse, and duff. And Sunday's the big day of the week. You get preserved meat, rice, mixed vegetables, and butter. But that's the official menu on board the USS Clifton. So it wasn't exactly uh, delicate fare that these guys were being served. Now, as the end of 1862 came on, uh, the Union fleet began receiving reports from shore that the Confederates were mounting an attack that they were getting ready to launch against them. And so Commodore Renshaw, William B. Renshaw, the captain of the Westfield, gathered all the men together and he delivered a speech. He says, I've called you together to tell you there's a rumor afloat that an attempt will be made some of these nights to drive us from the harbor by some rebel steamers. And I have reason to believe there's some truth in the rumor. Now, what I want to impress on you is that you must keep your eyes wide open to prevent a surprise. Be ready at your guns the first alarm. If they catch us napping, they may succeed. But if we are wide awake when they come, I'll be damned if they will. Well, he was shortly to be damned. Because on January the 1st, 1863, Confederate forces under Major General John, uh, Prince John Magruder, attacked at night on, uh, on Galveston Bay and using a combined land and sea force, they uh, uh, devastated the federal force and sent them out of Galveston Harbor. In the course of that, the USS Harriet Lane, one of the, the larger ships in the steamer fleet, was seized by the Confederates, and the Westfield, on which Henry Gusley had been served, that ship had the very, very unfortunate thing that happened to it. It ran aground on Pelican Spit early in the battle and was completely out of the battle. And finally, Commodore Renshaw decided he had to blow it up to keep it from getting into federal, uh, to get, keep it from getting into Confederate hands. He laid a slow match on board, which was a powder trail going to a bunch of gunpowder to blow the ship up. Unfortunately, the slow match was too fast for him. It blew up the ship and killed him and 13 men under his command. And that was the end of the USS Westfield. Henry Gusley was not on the ship at the time it was blown up. Uh, here's the destruction of the Westfield that was depicted in some of the newspapers. Uh, but uh, Henry Gusley at this point will be transferred, fortunately for me, to the USS Clifton. And so now we have the words and the pictures on exactly the same ship, this one Staten Island ferry boat. Now, the Clifton's no longer in Galveston Harbor. They've been driven out. Where do they go back? Well, they're sent back to Ship Island. And so, again, we're back at the base off of the Mississippi coast. Now, what do you do on Ship Island? They're, they're serving in, you know, duty trying to fight against blockade runners, capturing people like that and dealing with that, but there's a lot of downtime. And so I thought I'd tell you a little bit about what the men did during downtime. One thing they did a lot of, surprisingly, is dancing. 
They had large dances, and they would even put on minstrel shows. Now, that's not very politically correct these days, but in the Union Navy, it was immensely powerfully popular, and so they would put on these minstrel shows for entertainment. Another thing they did, uh, and you can see why, they did a lot of fishing, and they did a lot of duck hunting, because there are a lot of ducks off Ship Island, and they caught some fish that were almost 100 pounds, they said, and that added to that very, very bland diet that I told you about earlier. So they were really big on fishing and hunting. The last thing they did is it got to be a rage among the Federal Fleet having boat races, and they would bet on these boat races, and every ship had their own boat, and they would compete in contests to see who had the fastest boat. And this got to be Im immensely popular and helped to pass the time. Now, one thing, of course, that Henry Gusley did is he did a lot of writing, and he wrote this diary that I was fortunate enough to get. But have you ever thought about how these guys wrote? Now, of course, they didn't have ballpoint pens. They had these, uh, you know, quill pens, and they were using, you know, bottles of ink. But can you imagine writing a diary like this over a period of many months, years even, on a ship, you know, with a ship going back and forth off the coast? That's a difficult thing. And on one occasion here off a of ship island, uh, Henry Gusley had a terrible thing happen. He spilled his bottle of ink. Uh, and, and we don't think much about that, but what he had to do was go get a holy stone, which was a scouring device, and he had to scour the deck to clean up that ink. And he resolved from then on that he would be much, much more careful with indelible fluids, as he called it. But it really is amazing that a young man like this was able to keep this kind of a diary uh, given what he was doing. All right. Uh, the next thing we have with there in the Atchafalaya River and then they're in the Bayou Tesh campaign in Louisiana. They're going up the, the uh, Atchafalaya River up Grand Lake uh, and they'll help to land some federal troops up in a place called Indian uh, Lake or Indian Bend. And on their way up there, uh, Henry Gusley and Dr. Nestel are both just absolutely captivated by the scenery. Uh, in the swamps of uh, Louisiana, they've never seen anything like this. These, these plantations and these uh, moss-covered oak trees and so forth, it's fascinating to them. They've never seen this kind of country. And uh, Dr. Estelle uh, does a number of drawings that are just really frameable like artworks of these uh, trees on the Atchafalaya River. Beautiful, beautiful scenery. Uh, they'll, they'll go up to this place I said called Indian Bend, and there they'll land some federal troops. And uh, when they land the federal troops, the Confederates under Dick Taylor decide to resist, and a battle will break out, and the federal gunboats will help to subdue uh, the Confederate forces with their long-range guns. And I just thought I'd show you, this is one of the gunners on board USS Clifton. This is Old Leech, as he was called, and he's pretty, uh, pretty scurvy-looking guy. You can see he has a scar on his forehead that's about six or eight inches long, so this would be a kind of a tough character to run into, as you can imagine. He's a gunner's mate. All right, here's the Clifton. They come back, and they're going up the Tesh River, it's, or the, the Bayou Tesh itself, approaching Fort Bislin at night, and they're having to remove the Confederate pontoon bridges as they come up and support uh, the attack and eventually the capture of that fort. And the Union Navy at this point is doing all they can to subdue Confederate forts around Louisiana. So the next thing they'll be sent to do is to go over and attack uh, a fort called Fort Burton, which is located at a, a place on the Atchafalaya River called Butte La Rose. And that fort has about three big guns, and uh, the uh, Clifton will be involved in an engagement where they will actually subdue and capture that fort 
uh, capturing 200 Confederate prisoners and, and the three big guns. And this is written up in northern newspapers, and as you can see, here's one of the uh, engravings of that, that battle itself. Now, this is April of 1863. Uh, from there, they're sent back to blockade Mobile Bay. Now, at this point in the war, uh, again, the troops are starting to look for something else to do. They're kind of bored with this duty. And what they start doing is they launch some small boat expeditions. And what they're trying to do is to catch blockade runners, which, runners, which by this point are just flowing like uh, water out of Mobile Bay. And uh, these blockade runners are carrying cargoes of cotton. And if they capture these, these uh, uh, boats with cotton, they actually can get a share of the prize money. So there's an economic incentive to participate in this duty, and the Marines do their share of this duty as well. Now, from there, they go back to Bayou Teche, and they'll be involved in a secondary phase of the uh, Bayou Teche campaign uh, in July and, and the August of 1863. Uh, they'll catch some deserters at uh, Brashear City, which is uh, in Louisiana, and there they, they'll, uh, I, I like this discussion that uh, Gusley has of what the deserters tell him. They told the usual story of high prices and starvation, and unchristian though it seems, it was good news to all hands. And that brings to mind the story of news, because again, they're, they're getting news from northern newspapers, they're getting news from deserters, they're getting news from a variety of sources. But the next orders they get, and really the last orders they'll get, are to go to Texas again. They're heading back to Texas to try to make a, uh, an impression on the Texas coast. This time, General Nathaniel Banks will pick a place called Sabine Pass, which is literally the border between uh, Texas and Louisiana, the southern part of that border. And uh, as they steam into that position and try to take the small Confederate fort at the mouth of the pass, they will once again encounter that small Irish company that they had bypassed so easily at Galveston. But this time, they will not be so lucky because the 40 members of that Irish company, the Davis Guard, under Lieutenant Richard Dowling, will end up capturing two of the federal warships, including the USS Clifton, and they will send all 6,000 men of this Union expedition packing out of Sabine Pass in a, in a battle that Jefferson Davis will call the most amazing victory in military history. Here is the uh, Clifton itself being disabled in the battle. Again, this is where Henry Gusley and Dr. Nestell are both captured, and this is where uh, Henry Gusley's diary will fall into Confederate hands. This is uh, just a drawing of the surrender of the Clifton off of the uh, Confederate fort. And just as a sidelight, here is uh, the Irish lieutenant who captured this, uh, this vessel. And uh, one of the interesting things is that little medal you see on his, his jacket there uh, that was a special medal that was struck after this battle uh, that it is sometimes considered to be the equivalent of the Medal of Honor for the Confederacy. It's the only authorized medal uh, that the Confederacy ever authorized for bravery for these uh, 40 men that were in that fort on that day. And that's uh, Dick Dowling and the Davis Guard. All right, so what happens? Well, Henry Gusley again is taken with the other captured prisoners on board the USS Clifton, and they're taking the Camp Gross near Hempstead, a prison camp. And oddly enough, uh, it's at this point that his, his diary has fallen into the hands of the editor of the Galveston News, and it starts being published in the newspaper. And somehow, we don't know exactly how, a Galveston newspaper bearing his diary gets into the prison camp, and Gusley gets a hold of it. And he starts writing letters 
to the editor of the Galveston News, and they start this very unusual correspondence from the young Pennsylvania Marine in prison and the Galveston News editor back and forth, and that's, that's uh, uh, one of the things at the end of the book. Well, that, of course, ends the service of these two men, uh, in, in the Gulf Coast at least. What happens to them? Well, let me tell you the sad story of poor Henry Gusley, the man who did the words first. He's not released from captivity until April of 1865, so he's in there for a good long time. He develops a serious stomach order in prison, which will really uh, ruin the rest of his life. He can't maintain any uh, regular meals. He can't do any legitimate work uh, for the rest of his life, and he's basically an invalid for the rest of his life. Uh, it'll eventually be the cause of his death in Rochester, New York, on December 19th of 1884 at the age of 47. So this young man, who had all this incredible promise, uh, obviously was destined for greatness, uh, never really lived to see it because of the effects of the war on him. That was, that was tough. Now what about Dr. Nestel, the man who did the pictures? Well, Dr. Nestel uh, gets a little better treatment in terms of prison. He is released from prison in 1864 because of the convention that allows the release of physicians. He'll go back into active duty, although there's kind of a stain on his record because his commander, Sabine Pass, thought he didn't do a very good job of uh, treating the wounded during that battle. But Dr. Nestel will go back into regular duty and he'll be assigned to the USS Alabama. And unfortunately, the USS Alabama is one of the ships that will be involved off the Atlantic coast, off the Carolinas, in some massive bombardments of Fort Fisher. Now, if you think about it, this man has been in the middle of massive bombardments at New Orleans, Vicksburg, Port Lavaca, all these different places, and now on the Atlantic coast. And the result is that he loses almost all of his hearing because they didn't have any protection uh, for the loud noise that these men endured. So he becomes almost deaf. And uh, at the end of the war, he's released by the Navy. Uh, but again, he can't really maintain much of a regular practice because he's deaf. So what does he do? He joins the Army. And he goes out to the West Coast, and he's put into a series of frontier forts out in uh, Oregon and California as an Army position, and he'll serve out there until 1874. He'll end up having a, a really long life. He'll die in 1900 at the age of 81 in Oakland, California. So that's uh, where he'll end up out in California. So in the end, what do you make about the, the Civil War service of these men? And I'd like to invite you in closing uh, just to consider some, some comparisons with what these men did and saw with the men that we commonly think of. I mean, you, when you and I think of a Civil War soldier, for the most part, we think of people that, like the men that served in Lee's army or Grant's armies or some of these, these land armies. Now, most of those men uh, served in a relatively small geographic area. Many of them served only in one state, and you could probably take their entire service and it would fit comfortably within, say, a hundred mile range, maybe, maybe a little more, but not much more. These men travel thousands of miles. They're going everywhere from New York uh, to the southern parts of Texas, uh, and they literally don't know where they're going to be the next day. They, they see everything from the swamps of Louisiana to Florida and Texas and the Mississippi River. Uh, they see the grandeur of New Orleans, and so they see some of the most primitive parts of the South. So they had a wide range of experience. The second thing is the combat that these men saw was very different. One day they may be sitting and hearing nothing but the blowing of the winds, the sound of the ocean and the gulls, and the next moment they may, the next day they may be in the midst of a bombardment lasting seven days. That's probably the noisiest thing that the American continent had ever endured up to that time. 
So they really saw some, some significantly different uh, combat, and many of it was surprised. They were constantly surprised at uh, places like Galveston or Ellis's Cliff, uh, and they, they had to fight back under, a lot of times, very difficult circumstances. And finally, I'd like to invite you to consider the wide range of uh, uh, success and failure that these men endured. They were the part, at the outset of this service, of probably one of the most outstandingly effective things that was ever done in the Civil War, the capture of the city of New Orleans under dramatic circumstances, probably the most successful thing uh, that the U.S. Navy did during the war. They were also a part of actions at Galveston and Sabine Pass that Admiral Farragut himself was to label the most embarrassing incidents in the entire history of the U.S. Navy. So I think this is a chapter of the war that you don't hear a lot about. There's still a lot of research to be done, but as a case study, I think you can see that there's a, a lot that uh, these men did during the war that was interesting, that was valuable, and uh, I think we should all pause to remember these men, which Henry Gusley called Uncle Sam's nephews in the Gulf. Thank you very much. Yeah, Ed, thank you very much. Can you take some questions, sure. please? Other questions? Yeah. Uh, Ed, you mentioned that on April 24th of 1862, uh, Farragut's uh, men and ships uh, ran through that chain on the Mississippi River. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit about how they uh, went through that chain? They went up and cut the chain. They actually went to, uh, in the night. Yes, they did, and that was a, that was a major engineering effort. But uh, they had gone up there, and that was one of the keys was, could they cut it? Uh, in time for the expedition to go through it. It was a narrow thing, but they did get it cut. Was that uh, chain made out of rope? No, no. It was a, it was a, it was a chain. They had to, I, I frankly don't know how they cut it, but uh, they did. Does anybody know how they cut the chain by any chance? I don't. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, sir. Yes, he did. He, he went to Washington Barracks. Uh, he was in New York for a little while, and then he went to Washington Barracks. Uh huh. And did they give him the, a kind of regimen of 
training? They gave him some training, but very little. I mean, he was not in there for very long because, again, they were equipping this expedition in New York on a very expedited basis, and they, they, they pretty much piled those guys on. He's, he enlisted in October of 1861, and they're leaving in February, so he doesn't get a whole lot of training. Yeah. Yes, sir. Those mortars were awfully thick. What was their lifespan? Uh, none of the mortars blew up that I know of. Now, again, after Vicksburg, after this force right here, this force kind of slowly dissipates. They'll be, they'll be shunted off to a variety of different places, but they won't be used down in the Gulf very much. They'll end up again off of the Atlantic coast in the, in the, block, in the uh, actions against Fort Fisher. But, uh, you know, again, they're really mainly assembled to be used at, at New Orleans and uh, to a lesser extent at Vicksburg. They don't prove terribly effective at Vicksburg, and uh, so they will not really be used very much after the action at Vicksburg. And so the steamers will operate as just kind of an independent force under Farragut's command after that point. Yeah? He was the doctor who was How did his sketchbook survive? We do not know how his sketchbook ends up in the archives other than the fact that it's purchased by a collector who donated it to the Naval Academy. And again, it, it ends up there. I happened upon it and I was just shocked that it had not been, been published before because again, uh, you, you know, if you're interested in the history of one of these places or one of these vessels, uh, there's nothing any better than that. And we're actually working on some shipwrecks right now where these, these drawings of some of these ships are the best we have. Yeah. 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 The uh, the walking beam uh, again. The Sabine. The the Clifton is captured at Sabine Pass. They will turn it into a blockade runner, and the the uh, Confederates will try to run it out of Sabine Pass uh, in 1864. But unfortunately, you know that sandbar I told you about off of New Orleans. There's one just like it, only worse off Sabine Pass. They'll run aground on Sabine Pass, and they'll have to destroy the ship. And so the ship will sit there as a wreck. It still sits there today. Uh, it's part, part of it's taken out when they decide to build the jetties. But th at that point, when they decide to, uh, to take part of the wreck apart, they'll haul off the old uh, uh, walking beam and bring it up the river to Beaumont, where it sits today. We are actually in the process of moving that down to this beam pass battleground, where it should be. And incidentally, there is a little battlefield there. It's a bean pass. If you guys go on a tour down there sometime, I'd love to take you in it and uh, we'll show you around. Uh, there's a statue of Dick Dowling, the, the little Irish fellow that uh, sits there right, looking right at the entrance to the pass. And Hurricane Rita came ashore right on Dick Dowling. And, and after that battle, I called down, I mean, after that storm, I called down to the park headquarters and said, I asked with much trepidation, you know, what happened to the park? Does the statue still stand? And they said, yes, it stands. It's amazing. They said, they said you won't believe it. And I said, why? They said, the, the only damage to the historic parts of the park were that the two markers that we had put up to honor the federal casualties were knocked down. <laughs> the Dick Dowling statue and all the Confederate stuff stayed up, but the federal stuff was stayed down. Now, I know some Dowling descendants, and they all claim this is God's will. I don't you know. <laughs> But it was kind of interesting. Anything else? Well, thank you, folks, very much. Ed, Ed, please. Ed, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. Appreciate your coming to Chicago, back to Chicago. Delighted. And I'd like to present to you, I'm told I'm, I know how to, yes.
Okay. Roger, I can open this box, yes. Uh, I'd like to present to you our, our uh, medallion presented to Edward T. Cottom Jr., January 11, 2008, for gallant service to the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you all for being here. And please come back February 8, 2008. Uh, for David Long, uh, who's going to be speaking on Lincoln, uh, Davis, and the Dahlgren Raid. Safe ride home. Thank you all very much.